Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm thrilled to have my friend John Muir on the show today. John is a professor of economics at Texas A&M University and a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. His research focuses on charitable giving and the economics of education. And relevant to our conversation today, John played an important role in a major innovation that took place in the economics curriculum at Texas A&M. In addition, and somewhat less relevant, John is also my mountain biking pal. In this episode, we're going to talk about why college is so pricey now and what we can do to change the trajectory. John, I'm so pleased to have you here to talk about the cost of college. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Beth. All right, John, here's the here's a question that I've only gotten about a million times in my about decade long career in education policy. And that is why is college so darn expensive? So I think it's very tempting to point a finger at one specific thing. And I think that's a real mistake in most policies, policy spheres to think that there's only one cause. I think there are a lot of causes. I think some of them are consumer driven. Some of them are driven by the institutions. Some of them are driven by regulations. And so we could write an entire book about this. Maybe somebody should, Beth. But <laughs> there's, there's so many things that go into it. Some of it is that we subsidize college very heavily. And as economists, we know that subsidies can often lead to price increases, especially when supply is more limited. Actually, let me pause you there, John. So what does that mean? Basically, when we give people more money, they're willing to spend more money, and then prices go up? That's the long and the short of it. So if I offer you $10,000 towards the price of college, it's not necessarily the case that the price of college stays the same and you just have $10,000 to pay for it. Maybe the price of college goes up. And there is some research using data on Pell Grants, which are federal grants for low-income students, that suggests that institutions do capture some of the, some of the additional revenue that comes from Pell Grant recipients, because the students themselves are sort of insulated from that increase in cost. Pell Grant picks it up. And so the sticker price of college goes up while the net price stays pretty much the same. Okay. So something like we give a student $10,000 and then maybe the college actually charges them an extra $5,000 or something to that effect. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Okay. So let me ask you some more pointed questions on this. I read a lot about the climbing walls and the lazy rivers at colleges. So is that the problem? And do you spend a lot of time on the lazy river at Texas A&M? So Texas A&M does not have a lazy river. Maybe that's what's holding us back. But we do have some (laughs) phenomenal facilities, some of which are for athletics only, some of which are for all students. I'm going to take a more measured look at this. I don't know if if your listeners want polemics, they might have come to the wrong place. But (laughs) there are definitely upsides to some of those goodies beyond just people like goodies. So Ron Ehrenberg at Cornell has a really nice paper suggesting that some students who are maybe more marginally attached to college might be more likely to stay enrolled because of those nice goodies, because it's kind of a nicer place to stay. So to the extent that it's helping on that, there might actually be a legitimate educational concern that's involved in this. I don't know that it's the main reason why colleges are competing on these things, But that's kind of more of that demand side. The students want these things. And they're very often choosing schools based on which ones have the nicer nicer stuff, which is maybe why we shouldn't let 17, 18-year-olds make this decision for themselves with no input from anyone. Is it driving up costs? 
To some extent, definitely, it can't not be driving up costs. Is it making up the lion's share of this thing? I don't, I don't think so. Just because as, as expensive as those things are, when you amortize it over tens of thousands of students, it's, it's probably not that much. And there are important student services that add a lot of value, things like counseling services. A&M has some great stuff. For a while, there's been a writing center to help students with writing. Now there's a math center with math tutoring available for students. There's, of course, the counseling center, but there's also a personal finance center, which I always encourage the students to go check out, go learn how to save money properly. Our career center has loaner suits, loaner business attire for students who maybe can't afford or have grown out of their, of their nice clothes to, to get interviews. Those things have value and they're not free. And so, you know, are they, are they worth it? I don't know that anyone's sitting down and doing the sort of rigorous cost-benefit analysis that maybe we should be doing, but they raise the price, but I do think that they add some value. Okay. So this is kind of addressing the argument we often hear that administration at colleges is bloated. You've got all kinds of deans of interview wear and deans of the lazy river management and things like that. So but you're kind of making the point that these are not just silly expenditures. It's not just bloat that things have grown out of control over time, but rather, you know, it's probably a mix between that and that there's some real value being created. And I think that there's, it's really important to draw that distinction and the line is very, very fuzzy. So for example, my department has a handful of academic advisors who do work that in smaller departments or 30 or 40 years ago would have been done by faculty. And that made no real sense to be done by faculty. Things like helping students sign up for their classes and making sure that they're taking the right sequence of math classes. Comparative advantage suggests that someone else should be doing that rather than the people who are instructors or research active faculty. Those things are, add a ton of value and make a lot of sense. Now, the higher level bloats, the sort of the deanlets that you were referring to, it's again, it's, it's hard to know because doing the accounting behind this stuff isn't all that easy. But I can, my favorite recent example is the University of Illinois just hired an associate vice chancellor for Native American Affairs that reports to the vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, diversity, equity, and inclusion are important things and, and worthy goals. There is this giant bureaucracy that has grown up around them. It is very difficult to come out and say, is this actually adding to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jim West, a professor of economics at Baylor, has a paper suggesting that these offices do not actually increase diversity among the faculty. I'll bet that paper does not make him very popular. No, it did. that paper is not made, not made Jim and his co-authors very popular on this, but it's important. It, it, we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these offices are they actually doing anything? That seems like a really, really important question. And so this complex is, has, has risen around these important policies, but no one is asking the question of whether they're actually adding value. And I think, you know, people are afraid to ask the question, are these offices adding value? Right. You know, one of the factors here is that teaching and educate the process of educating people more broadly is very labor intensive. We've got to fa pay the fancy professors like, like you, John, to, to do the job. And so I've always been a bit skeptical of the traditional model of education, you know, and have wondered, we've got all these kids sitting in a classroom. i sorry, I shouldn't say kids, students sitting in a classroom being lectured to by a professor who's getting 
paid a competitive salary? And and is there a better, maybe cheaper way? And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because you were responsible for making a pretty big change in the curriculum for economics students at Texas A&M. And so I'd like for you to maybe just tell us about, you know, how that came about and how it's working. So let me start by, by talking about that course, which is Economics 202, Principles of Microeconomics. So about six years ago, I decided that I really wanted our students to have uniform, high-quality principles class that was focused on intuition and was taught by someone amazing. And so the obvious choice was me. And I Naturally. tackled this with help from my now-retired colleague, Steve Wiggins. So previously, the, we had a 15 to 18 sections of this class, which was teaching about 3,000 students a year. And the class was, some, some sections were taught by amazing lecturers who had been doing it for years and had it down pat. And some were being taught by third year PhD students who maybe were talented, but were doing it for the first time. And no one is good at this, doing it for the first time. And they were being taught in 200 to 300 person lecture halls at, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 8 a.m. And maybe you got someone teaching it this style. Maybe you got someone teaching it that style. And I didn't think it was a really positive experience for our undergrads. I thought it was unfair to our PhD students to kind of throw them into this and without the necessary support to teach a large lecture class. So I did a bunch of research. I got help from some people with some experience, like John Taylor at Stanford was, was really generous with his time. He's been teaching an online version of the economics course at Stanford for a while. And we built out this class and test ran it with 200 students the first semester, 500 students the next semester, made tons and tons of changes, learned so much, made so many mistakes, and gotten it to a point where it's really streamlined and delivers what I think is a really high quality product at a very, very low marginal cost, meaning that each additional student doesn't take up a ton of extra time. The downside to this, of course, is less personal contact with the students. But the counterfactual, the alternative to this was never going to be me teaching 25 students, doing Dead Poet Society, you know, really getting in there. That, that was, that's not, I'm not scalable, sad to say. Well, if you were really dedicated, John, that's <laughs> what you would have done. But... If I just taught 30, 30 sections, even 30 sections <laughs> of 25 students wouldn't get us, wouldn't get us halfway <laughs> to this Okay, class. okay, you, you get a pass. You're, you're not scalable. So... Right. It's always important to think about what is the like actual realistic counterfactual. And that makes sense here. Yeah. And there's resistance to this. You know, there's resistance. Yeah, I've had I've had some parents be like, why is why is my kid getting a bunch of YouTube videos? You know, I'm paying for Texas A&M, flagship state university. And I'm like, again, what's the alternative? What this allowed us to do was teach more sections of the advanced the intermediate core classes, and to offer a wider array of the you know, 300, 400 level classes on different, on different topics, different specific topics. The alternative really was A&M's econ department has almost tripled in size in the 12 years that I've been here Wow! without a commensurate increase in teaching power. So the alternative to this, as I frequently remind my colleagues, I'm sure they're tired of hearing it, is all of them get to start teaching a section of principles instead of getting to teach, you know, their, their 30 or 40 or 50 person section of sports economics or economics of gender and inequality or 
field experiments, field policy experiments, and other really cool things that our students really benefit from. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk about where this idea came from, because, you know, I think when I hear about this project as an outsider policy type person, I think, oh, great, this is a really cool cost saving measure that makes education more efficient, maybe even cheaper for students. And your angle was, I want to teach a better economics curriculum for students. And you think this is this is a way to accomplish that. So, I mean, what is the trade off between quality and efficiency? I think there is a real trade off and I think we have to recognize it. I think that I'm sympathetic to students who say, you know, I learn better in person, especially freshmen coming in. I think they have no real understanding of, again, what the alternative to, to the way I'm delivering the class is. It's one of the reasons why I offer my TAs and assistant TAs offer about 30 hours a week of in-person help, a lot of it on Zoom so that people can drop in and have that like 30 second post-class question. There was this one term that you defined that I just didn't get. Now, the advantage is if I have an off day when I'm filming, we refilm it. Whereas if I had an off day in front of my students, then maybe that lecture just kind of, you know, dissipates. They can't go back and rewatch it. So I think there are huge advantages to the online format where everything's archived there. They can watch the video three times. If I talk too slowly for them, they can watch me at one and a quarter speed. If, if I talk too fast, they can pause, rewind, go back to it again. And they have this Zoom drop in to get it. I think the higher ed, the education sector in general is incredibly sclerotic, higher ed in particular. I think it's fascinating to look at the list of top universities and realize that they're there are a handful of, of pretty good public schools that have been founded in the last hundred years. But if you look at the youngest sort of elite private university, the youngest one is like 130 years old. If you look at the very first, I like to show my students in my economics of education course, the list of the very first college rankings that came out in like 1911. And you look at it, it might as well be U.S. News and World Reports in 2021. I was going to say, is it U.S. News and World Reports? It might as well be. It's the same schools in basically the same order. What industry, in what industry does the list of top companies look the same from 30 years ago, let alone from 100 years ago, 110 years ago at this point? And I think as long as, this is true for K-12 also, but as long as parents expect their kids to get an education in the same way they got an education, which frankly is the same way as a university in Paris or Oxford was delivering it from a monk in 1180. Sage on the stage, one person, 30 students, maybe a chalkboard. Well, now we use smart boards. That's we're, all we're doing. We're using technology not to expand the, the quality and efficiency of the education, but to deliver chalkboard better, which is why I still use a chalkboard in my 50-person economics of education class because I think that I think that the alternatives are not actually more valuable. All right, John. So we've got a lot of parents listening to this. And so now you've just blamed them entirely for the constantly escalating cost of higher education and the inability for your sector to innovate. Now, I want to give you a chance to dig yourself out of this hole a little bit and maybe offer that there are some institutional barriers that are preventing this sort of thing from happening. Because I know you didn't just snap your fingers and make this thing happen overnight. I mean, having spent a bit of time at universities myself, I can, I can just imagine that wasn't the case. So what's stopping, other than the demand side, what's stopping this sort of innovation from coming about through the institutions themselves? 
That's a great question. I do think there are a lot of institutional barriers. So I will leave aside the accreditation police, which is could be its own its own thing. It absolutely drives costs up. There are certain barriers for international students. There is a limit on the number of online courses that international students can take. We ran into this a lot during the pandemic. The State Department waived some of those requirements during the pandemic just because students obviously were not able to not take classes online. I think a lot of it is that, that the incentives of the institutions are not necessarily aligned with this. Now, there are very creative institutions out there. So Georgia Tech, for example, has this online data science master's program that's been incredibly successful and wildly popular. It takes a huge upfront investment. You need buy-in from the faculty. The laws of supply and demand suggest that you will need to pay faculty a premium if you want high-quality faculty doing this. There, even among economists, even among the authors of the textbooks that I've used or considered, there's a lot of like wondering, you know, why, why isn't someone making course in a box that can be deployed at community colleges where then the community college instructor, you know, it's kind of flipped and you have the instructor doing, you know, working through problems with students. And I think part of it is resistance from, from faculty, especially at higher ranked institutions. It's sort of not the job you signed up to do, right? Not the job you signed up to do and kind of worried about about getting, you know, they'll complain about teaching, but then they complain about being replaced by someone at, a, at another institution. I think for an elite institution, it is very difficult for Princeton to say, you know what, this guy at Harvard has this amazing online course. And what we're going to do is use the Harvard online course, and then you'll have these small group sessions with Princeton faculty. And you might wonder, what am I paying, you know, 70 grand, you know, minus financial aid for if I could just do this online? I think that a big part of this, and without getting too deep into the weeds of, I know you had Brian Kaplan on, on, the, on the show, without getting too deep into the weeds of the human capital versus signaling thing, I don't go as far as Brian, but I do think that a good chunk of the college experience is consumption. That is Lazy Rivers and Sage on the Stage and, you know, my great-grandfather had his, has, had his economics class in the same room, taught in the same way. That's not a good thing, necessarily. And some of it is signaling. And so if you can gather up a whole bunch of online courses, what's the point of getting the rubber stamp on your forehead that says, I attended this school or that school? I do think there's been great innovation in places like Western Governors, which is actually, it's, it's not completion-based, it's mastery-based. I mean, what a crazy idea. We'll give you credit for this class when you prove that you know it. And if that takes X weeks, then it takes X weeks. If it takes three X weeks, then it takes three X weeks. Yeah, it's a pretty wild but awesome model for a lot of students. So we, we talk a lot about, you know, kind of just shifting coursework online. And that's a big piece of the innovation that, you know, happened in, in your curriculum. But what else is there? I mean, the, we just talked about competency-based education, which is the model at Western Governors where students progress through coursework after they prove that they know it rather than having to sit their butt in a chair for X number of hours. And that's really exciting. Where else is there potential for innovation that would allow us to deliver education more efficiently? You know, like assume that all these barriers about perception and the issue of signaling and wanting to, to be in the same room that your grandfather took his economics course in. I mean, what's like the, what's kind of like the magic bullet or a few of them that would, would get us to a more cost-effective and therefore less exclusive model of higher education? 
So one of the things that, that Texas does, which I like, is Texas makes dual enrollment and students taking college courses in high school very, very easy. So when I was in high school in New Jersey, you know, there'd be one or two kids who had kind of finished all the. I went to a very, very good public high school in New Jersey. There'd be one or two kids who would kind of finish the math and they would, the math sequence, and they would go off to Rutgers and take a semester of math. That's actually really common in Texas. Kids in College Station end up taking a lot of math classes at A&M. I've met high school students, high school seniors who are on their fourth semester of college math by the time they're graduating from high school. There are a lot of courses that are taken in community colleges. A lot of my students come in with a ton of credit. It is very possible to finish in three years at A&M because you come in with basically all of your distribution requirements done. The legislature has done some things that, again, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my kind of mixed emotions about it in a second, but I think that it makes complete sense. One of their priorities is time to graduation. And there is a set of courses that are uniformly transferable across all public educational institutions in Texas. So if you are a transfer student from a West Texas community college and you took this set of math classes, this set of econ classes, this set of English classes, Texas A&M has to take them as transfer credit. There's no choice in the matter. We have to take them. And students may come in having taken some of those community college classes in, in high school. You know, they took community college English composition and they come in and they've got their English requirement checked off. Now, where do I have some trepidation about this? Some of it is a little self-serving, obviously, but there is a difference between the way this course may be taught at Texas A&M and the peer group with whom you're taking it, and perhaps the quality of instruction, maybe, between Texas A&M and, you know, West Texas Community College. Well, especially now that you're teaching all the sections, John, right? Well, especially now that I'm... And, and, and I'll be honest, again, this is very self-serving. I really like my, my econ class. We go way further than the AP curriculum. We go way further than the sort of state-required curriculum. And so students who come in with this transfer credit, which we are required to take, and a lot of them who want to be econ majors do come in with it because they're interested in econ or they're transferring from community college, and they have to have taken this course in order to transfer. My class goes into way more detail, covers way more stuff, and does so at a deeper intuitive level than I think a lot of other courses do, certainly than the AP, the AP curriculum does. And so I do think there are a lot of positives about this, but I do have some trepidation about the, the true equivalence of these courses. That said, I think on net, it is an absolutely a positive thing in terms of making it cheaper, making it more accessible, and making time to graduation shorter. And I tend to be a fan of anything that shakes up the model a little bit. So maybe we'll learn this doesn't work well, but at least it kind of causes us to think a little bit more deeply about what we're doing. You know, I followed really closely things that are happening in the education space that's outside of degree programs. So things like coding boot camps, I think are really exciting. Do you, what do you think of those models? Do you think that there's something for traditional institutions to learn from them? Do you think that those will be the future of education? That's a great question. So this is actually related to advice that I give to freshmen and actually to, to anyone as they, as they think about their education, which is things that are easy to verify by an employer or a graduate program 
are generally not necessarily the things you want to take a class for, a formal class in, in school. So what's, what's hard to learn? Writing well is hard to like take an online class for. Certain types of math classes or statistics classes may not be that easy to do in a very asynchronous manner. You kind of need to grind through problem sets. You can't sort of do them otherwise. Now, I'm not so, people learn dif- differently and people learn in different ways. But what I tell students is, look, if you took four semesters of French in college and you apply for a job and you tell them, I know French, and they say, okay, good, because that's a prerequisite for this. They are not going to care that you took four semesters if they start speaking to you in French and you look at them blankly. It is very easy to prove whether you have human capital for this. And of course, this is one of Brian Kaplan's favorite examples of human capital versus signaling. If you failed your high school French class, you probably didn't get into a very good college. Whereas if you aced your high school French class, but then forgot everything, it doesn't have any effect on, you know, your later life outcomes. I think that programming languages are very much like like foreign languages in many ways, but particularly in the sense that if you apply for a data scientist job and you tell them, I know R and I know Python, they say, great, here's our coding exercise that you need to do in order to prove that you know this. You either know it or you don't. It doesn't matter that you took three semesters of computer science at Texas A&M or at Princeton or at Harvard or wherever. If you don't know how to do it, you don't know how to do it. So what I emphasize to students is think through what you have to just know and what is easily provable versus what is very difficult to learn on your own slash through alternative measures and what where the signal is more valuable because it is more difficult to prove that you're very good at compositional writing, for example. Yeah, got it. Okay, I think that's really a really great and helpful point. Let me kind of get you to answer another like slightly more practical question than where we where we've been so far. I've recently written a book, shameless plug. What's it called? It's called Making College Pay. You might have heard of it on this podcast many, many, many times. So, you know, I just wrote this book that was all about how, you know, if you want to be careful with your money that you spend on college, go look and see like what's the return on investment that people are getting. And I appreciate that that's a narrow way of thinking about value in education. So as someone who's an insider, you know, imagine you're talking to a friend who's got a high school student looking at colleges. What's the kind of value that you'd be encouraging them to look at when they're doing their campus visits or looking over college websites to think about where, where they want to go? That's a great question. We now have some of these, these output measures like you know, income-based measures, some of the things that Raj Chetty and his team have put together and that the New York Times has digitized. And of course, you know, everything's on kind of a 10-year lag, which is a bit of a problem. But I would say, yeah, you've talked a lot about sticker price versus net tuition. I always encourage people to really take a close look at the flagship state institutions in state. I think they, I think they offer tremendous value. I'm, I'm amazed at how inexpensive Texas A&M is for the quality that it is, especially for things like engineering, where some of Texas A&M's departments are top 10 or top five full stop, not, ten, not top 10 public, just top 10. And so you can get an elite education for in-state tuition, quite possibly minus a lot of merit aid as well. College is what you make of it. And so if you go to a Princeton, but 
you loaf through it and you coast through it and you take the the what we call gut classes, the easy classes, you're probably not going to get that much out of it other than the rubber stamp on your forehead that says Princeton, which, you know, Brian and I agree is worth quite a bit. You come to A&M, you take honors classes, you interact with top professors, you get involved with undergraduate research, you're going to do really, really well. And I think the value proposition there is extremely high. And I think, I think the schools that are going to get squeezed really hard are the second tier private institutions that are kind of in the same, same or lower quality tranche as a good flagship state institution like a Texas A&M or I guess a UT Austin, maybe. Kind of got to pull that one out of me. Or a SUNY Albany. Or SUNY Albany, you know, very, very good school. Compare those to some of the private institutions that do not have better outcomes, that do not have better reputations, and yet somehow cost five times more. You know, it, that, that makes no sense to me. I think, it's, an, I think it's, it's telling of how sclerotic the higher ed market is, that that tranche of the market still exists. And somehow some of these schools charge more list tuition than Princeton and Stanford and, and Yale. Forget about net tuition, because those places are heavily driven by tuition. You know, a place like Princeton is basically free for families whose incomes are below the 97th percentile of the household income distribution. And that's grants, not loans. It's 100% grant aid. I would say just take a long, hard look at that, that comparison. If that's the comparison you're making, which is a comparison a lot of people are making, their kids are smart, they're looking at very good schools with very good reputations. Your state's flagship university is probably a superior choice to a lot of the schools in your choice set. Yep. I think you're right on that one. That is also the margin that I worry a lot about when I'm talking to friends who are looking at potentially very expensive private non-competitive colleges for their children. So very cool. What about the for-profits, John? We read a lot about how these are these terrible, evil institutions. Is that true? So I don't know about evil. (laughs) Maybe I do. The evidence is pretty clear. I do think there's probably a handful of, of decent for-profit institutions. There are some interesting, there's some interesting models out there. The vast majority of for-profit institutions seem like they are not delivering what they promise. I think looking at graduation rates is probably one of the most important things people can do. The graduation rates at even some well-known schools are shocking. I mean, just staggering. And to me, this, this ties into one of the things that you were mentioning, namely outside of college opportunities. It's so strange to me that we're in this college for all mindset when the marginal student does not graduate. And in fact, the 25th percentile student does not graduate. And at most places, the median student doesn't graduate. And it's so strange to me that anyone could look at that situation and say, you know what would make this better is let's cram another half million students into this clearly non-functional paradigm, as opposed to saying, look, sitting through three semesters of English composition is not for everyone. And believe me, anyone who's gotten something fixed in their house lately knows that that folks who have a valuable skill set that maybe doesn't translate well into the, into the two or four year college framework are doing really well for themselves. I think that showing respect for alternative pathways is incredibly important. And turning up your nose at the idea of skilled manual trade, 
I mean, a, a good plumber makes more than a bad lawyer. And that's usually a laugh line, but you can look at the data on this. A good plumber makes more than a bad lawyer. A good plumber makes more than a mediocre lawyer and quite a bit more these days. And they didn't have to spend seven years in school paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. And so there's obviously a continuum between plumber and lawyer. But I think that keeping an open mind about this rather than trying to shove everyone into the same you know, you do this from age 18 to 22 and you get your rubber stamp on your forehead and then off you go. It's not working. It's not working for a lot of kids. And maybe we should rethink what that means rather than just trying to say, look, this is the only pathway to success in this country. I completely agree, John. And I think that's an excellent point to end our discussion today. So I just want to thank you so much for spending the time with, with me and with our listeners. Yeah, it was my pleasure to be here, Beth. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.